together. I'm Greg Boyd, a teaching pastor here at Wilden Hills Church, and it's good to share this moment with all of you. Um, some of you, I'm sure, have heard this, and I just want to say this uh, publicly, that um, our hearts go out to, and our prayers need to go out to, uh, the family of Rachel Hollett Evans, uh, who passed away earlier today. Um, she had fallen into, a, she had got a few flu virus, and there's a fluky condition, I guess, that happens, very, very rare, but uh, it causes their brain to go into seizure. Flu causes the brain to go into a seizure. And so they put her in a temporary induced coma and then tried to bring her out of that. Uh, she's been under it for, for a couple of weeks, uh, but in the process of that, she died. So keep her husband and two children uh, in prayer and uh, all who are directly impacted by this. Um, I didn't know her well, but, but I, I consider her a friend. And, and, uh, in fact, she was supposed to preach here a couple of years ago, and um, I went to pick her up at the hotel, and she was so sick she couldn't come. And it turns out she had morning sickness because she was pregnant with her second child, and that was three years ago. And so it's a great loss, and uh, just, just keep that family in prayer. Um, Sandra last week, wow, <laughs> wow. <laughs> Oh, man, that's called nailing it. Uh, that, that, that message was so good, I had half a mind to say, forget my message, let's just replay hers. I mean, that was just, that was too good. I, mean, I suppose you can do that on your own. But it hit me in, in, in a strong way, particularly because of some things I've been experiencing and, and some research I was doing this week uh, on encouragement, um, on the science of encouragement. And um, I just felt, this wasn't the plan, but I, I, I wanted to... Uh, I just felt like I am supposed to go at some of the same stuff she did, but from a little bit different angle. Um, she just got to some, 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 a real important place, I think. And so I want to loop that in with the book of Job a little bit. So the first two messages on this encouragement series are primarily about people who are in crisis situations. But this whole series isn't about this. We want to talk about encouragement in our everyday life and, and, and all of that. And we'll get to all that. But for this message, I, I, I felt I want to just... Have it again, the focus on uh, dealing with people in crisis, but it has application to really all of our relationships, as you'll see here in a little bit. Uh, and I want to entitle this message, Embrace the Suck, for reasons that will become here clear in, in a little bit. Embrace the Suck. So here, here's how it goes. Some of you have experienced this. You're going along. Life is fine. It feels orderly. Everything's on track. More or less, it's never totally on track, but, you know, your life is manageable. It's, it's, and then life throws you a curveball. Don't you love those curveballs? Coming out of nowhere. You didn't see it coming. It's just random, most unexpected. 37-year-old wife, mother of your children, gets the flu and dies. That's a curveball. Your finances are ruined. That's a curveball. I mean, it, it can, could be anything. And, and you become undone. Maybe it was the divorce you went through or the affair that you had or the abortion that you had or, or the disease that the doctor told you had, the health report of your loved one. It could be anything, but life gets totally reframed. Some of you have had that, haven't you? In an instant, your normal is no longer there. And you can come undone with that. Everything that you thought was secure is no longer there. And it's... Uh, and so maybe you, 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 you get angry at God, you get angry at others, you get angry at life, existence. And uh, you say some stupid, ungodly things. Maybe you do some stupid, ungodly things. And most Christian places will put up, they have a little bit of grace space for that. As long as it doesn't get too out of control and too crazy, there's a little bit of grace space for that. But in most environments, it's a limited grace space. And when you cross the line... Well, then you'll find that there's a line of people that line up to, to, to get ready to fix you. 
Uh, they, they, they've got the solutions. And uh, now some of you are old enough to remember this movie, uh, but you may have felt something like this. Let's watch this video clip. Copyright restrictions, we trim some content from the sermon. Please visit our website, whchurch.org, where we'll try to post a link to the material that we used. Okay, a little over the top. A uh, little backstory on this one. Uh, Shelly and I you know, spent a couple years in this really rigid Pentecostal church where you don't go to movies. Okay, we were just getting out of that. Uh, we were newly married and just leaving that behind us. And uh, this was the second movie that we went to. The first one was Fiddler on the Roof. <laughs> And that was kind of like daring. It's like, oh, what should we do with this? You know, I almost have kind of feeling of naughty. Uh, and then we went to Airplane. And I will tell you, have, having not been at a movie theater for four years, I laughed so hard I could not breathe. I couldn't breathe. I, I was, it, it was uncomfortably funny. <laughs> it was just crazy. Um, you know, anyways. I thought so. so that's a little bit of exaggeration of what you maybe felt like, but something like that. You know, the, you come undone, you're losing it, and, and the Christians just get in line. Uh, you know, the first ones in the land are the My Bible Says crowd. You know, My Bible says rejoice always and give thanks in everything, which is a very true statement, but timing is everything, folks. And when said to a person in crisis, it just doesn't land well. My Bible says always. What do you do with that scowly face of yours? You know, always means always, and, and this, is a, this is part of always, so you ought to be happy right now. My Bible says you just got to believe and receive. My Bible says if you have faith, you can move mountains. You can get out of that wheelchair if you have enough faith. And see, that implies that it's your lack of faith that's keeping you in that wheelchair. True things said out of season in the wrong context can be devastating and destructive. A truth in, a, in, in the wrong environment can become an untruth. And then right behind the, my Bible says is the, is the you just got to crowd. You just got to stand strong. You just got to trust. You just got to turn your thoughts on positive things, and things will start looking up right away. You just got to start praising God like crazy, and you'll find you feel better all the time. You just got to. And when they're done slapping you around, and right behind them is a club, or the group with the, some, some clubs. And they're the, 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 yeah, the, the uh, what are they called? They're the, the, uh, yeah, uh, at least crowd. At least you crowd. I mean, I'm sorry you lost your eyesight, but at least you still can talk and you can still hear. Sorry you lost your husband, but at least you still have your children. Sorry you lost your wife, but at least you know it's temporary. I, I'm, I'm sorry that you, I know you want children so bad, but at least you can adopt. At least, at least, at least. And there's a context in which that maybe would be a, a good thing to say, but in Christ, it's, that's not the thing to say. That can be a very damaging thing to say. And then behind the at least you crowd comes the, the if you're in an unfortunate group to be, you have the misfortune of being in this group, this is the, the it's all for the better crowd. You see, I know it's a ter terrible tragedy went through, and it seems so terrible, so painful, and so it seems so random, but you see, God's got a plan. He's working it all out, and, and, and this is all part of that great plan. And it's all for the better, and, 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 and he's, he's still on his throne, and providence writes straight with crooked lines, and there's a reason for everything, and a season for everything, and judge not the Lord by feeble reason, but trust him in his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Remember that? Uh, that, that 19th century poem, so I'm sorry you lost your child. It seems so tragic. It seems like providence is frowning on you, but you got to see a big smile on God's face. Apparently, he's enjoying this whole thing, and you wonder why some people have trouble believing in God. Folks, all this kind of thinking, this, this religious clay fix it, uh, cliche fix-it thinking, uh, it's right out of the book of Job. We have a whole book of the Bible that was written to refute this kind of thinking, and yet it still is so, so pervasive. Uh, Job goes into this crisis, and no one knows why. None of the characters know why. And um, uh, for six days, his friends do the right things. They sit, and they shut up. 
they're quiet, and they just grieve with him. They give him that gray space. But then Job starts talking, and he starts saying some nasty things about God and to God. Read the book of Job. He calls God a monster, a, a cruel beast who just toys with him, rips him apart. At one point calls him his adversary, Satan. So he's saying some nasty things, and that's Job's friends just can't take it. Now they got to crack down. Now they got to speak truth. Now they got to contain this thing. And so they start dumping on him all this, all, all this teaching, all of it implying that somehow it's your fault, it's your fault. And if you'll just do this, Job, or at least, Job, you should give thanks for this. And Job at one point in chapter 6, he says, you guys are like thirsty travelers in the desert who are looking for water, and you see a mirage, and you're hoping it's water, but you're afraid. And then he says, you've seen my calamity, and, and you're terrified of that. You're afraid of that. Because, see, his calamity, his, his ordeal, is exposing the mirage quality of their theology. They're drinking from this theology that they think they know what God's doing. They think they know what God is up to. And in, in, in their world, you see, that everyone who suffers, it's because they're getting punished by God. That's what makes sense to them. And Job is here revealing that uh, a challenge to, to this. See, Job's friends are afraid. That if, if, if Job's suffering was really as random as it seems... For example, if Job's suffering is a result of some heavenly conflict we don't know about, some challenge of God's character we don't know about in the heavenly realms, some random wager that was, was, was made in the heavenly realms, if that's why Job's suffering, well, then it could happen to any of us. And these folks want to believe, and I've met plenty of Christians this way, that they just want to believe that if I am true to God, if I'm faithful, if I'm righteous, if I say my prayers and I obey the rules and I do the good things and I make my sacrifices, God will protect me. I've got that assurance. And see, the price of you having that assurance is that anybody who is suffering, it means that God wasn't protecting them, which implies that they're being punished for something. There's something wrong. That's, that's the thinking of, of, of Job's friends. They're afraid that what happened to him might happen to them. And, and so they drink from this mirage theology, their self-serving theology. And, uh, but Job here is exposing the mirage quality because everybody knows that this guy's righteous. And, and, uh, and yet they're going to insist. Rather than allowing his suffering to maybe challenge their theology, they double down on their theology. And they can't handle this kind of chaos, this kind of, you can't make sense out of this, this kind of randomness, this, this ugly situation. They can't handle that. So they just impose reality on it. Since we know what must be true, we'll just assert that that is true. And they say stupid, stupid, stupid things, as religious people do when they're motivated by fear. So, for example, you find Eliphaz saying at one point to Job, uh, has, have the innocent ever perished? Think now. Who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? No, Eliphaz, don't say think now. This isn't what you say when you're thinking. This is what you say when you're not thinking. Shut off the brain. And who that was innocent ever perished? Really, in the whole history of the universe, no one innocent ever perished, right? No one that was righteous ever got caught off, Really? You know, in the ancient world, the mortality rate, I've read, uh, in some areas, was over 50%. And that, that was 50% or so was the average, they estimate. Um, half of all the children born didn't make it to the age of five. And, and uh, I mean, Eliphaz lives in that world. In fact, there's ancient wisdom texts, we find, where they encourage parents not to get attached to your children until they're at least four or five years old to spare yourself the grief. Because there's a 50-50 chance you're going to lose them. Eliphaz lives in that world where children die 
all the time. Half the kids don't make it to five. And yet, he has the audacity to say, when have the innocent ever perished? Look around. Get your, how, how deep do you have to have your head in the religious sand to make a statement like that? It's absolutely crazy. And it's a testament to just how blind fear-based religion can make a person. To just how brain-damaged fear-based religion can make a person. Fear-based religion can make people drive planes into skyscrapers sky and set women on fire because you think they're witches and, and torture other people thinking that you can torture people in the faith. It makes you do some crazy, crazy stuff. The book of Job is a testament to this. We're blinded by our fear. We can't take this chaos we don't understand and, and it's painful, and therefore we just try to impose an order on it. And we just try to see the world through our religious colored glasses. And it's all about us. We want the security. We want to know that we've got the formula, the guarantee that what happened to them won't happen to us if, if we just do these things, believe these things, say these things. Job's friends feared that what happened to Job could happen to them uh, if, it's, if it's as random as it appears. I think we, we fear often just the pain itself. If, if I truly empathize with this person, if I truly acknowledge that this situation is as bad as it seems, if I let that on the inside, it's going to hurt. And see, as Sandra said last week, we all like comfortable order, and none of us likes painful chaos. And so to invite this in in our life, to really feel what another feels, that's going to be painful, and a lot of us are afraid of that. That's why Sandra said she, she didn't want to look at that 16-page journal that her brother had written. She knew it would rip her apart from the inside out. Now, she had the courage to do it, but it took courage. The easier route would be to just keep it at bay, to say, at least you, uh, you just got to. Have the innocent ever perished? And just sort of impose an order on it to tidy it up, to make it look a little better, to fit a little better into your worldview. And see, it looks like we're saying these things for others. You just got to at least have the innocent ever perished. It looks like Job's friends are trying to advise him, and no doubt they believe they're sincere. But see, it's really not about the other person at all. It's about you. You're saying these things for your sake. You need to hear these things to maintain your grip on order and, and to hold fast to that. You're not helping the other person at all. You just got to. Better do. Or maybe we fear that we're going to not have anything to say that's helpful. And maybe what we'll say will actually be harmful. Because there are situations that are, are too deep for words. Uh, too painful for words. And there, are, there is a time, as Job's friends rightly saw, where the only appropriate response is silence. And we are very awkward with silence. So we try to fix the thing is this, I, I found that, that when the gray space runs out, well, I, the gray space runs out when we start to get triggered, when our fears start to arise. And that's when things come out of our mouth that are out of that fear and are not very helpful. It, it's, in, in LA, I, I, I want to give this first piece of advice. And it's so important, but it's rarely spoken. And it's this. When you have a loved one who is in a crisis or somebody that you know about that's in a crisis and you feel called to minister to them, one of the things that's very, very important to do is to first take an inventory of where you're at as you're approaching them and ask the question honestly, is this triggering any of my fear buzzers? Is this, is this causing fear in me? And then to face that fear and to name that fear and to embrace that fear. Is this situation here triggering your trust in God? Is it maybe making you wonder about some things? Is it challenging your perspective on something? 
Do you have a a fear of letting the pain inside? Are are you afraid of that maybe if if you do that, you'll lose it and worsen the situation by scaring the other person by how grieved you are? Maybe that's a fear of yours. Are you afraid of coming completely undone or not having anything to say or do that could possibly be helpful? You have to face that reality. Name that reality. Embrace that that, that fear. And, um, And if possible, write it down. If you have time, write it down. Because just that process makes it more manageable. And see, the more you're in touch with your own fear, the less inclined you're going to be to speak out of that fear. And it's not just about people in crisis situations. It could just be a situation a person's in. It triggers something in you, and you say something that is not going to be helpful. Monitor where you're at. Embrace, your, 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 embrace the, the, the messiness of the whole thing. Uh, embrace... Ask God to give you the courage to note your fears and to press through them, praise God. Ask God to give you that perfect love that can cast out fear. Ask Jesus to give you a love that's stronger than that fear, that gives you the courage to embrace the situation and embrace this person just as they are. Because the greatest help you can be to another person in crisis, and sometimes the only way you can be of help to a person in crisis, is just to be there, just to be present to this person, just to love this person. To encourage another means you breathe courage into them. Encourage. You're breathing in courage. And see, when you have the courage to face and overcome your own fears, to be present, fully present, and to let that person's situation in on your inside, that your courage now is breathing, going to breathe courage into them. Just being there is the all-important thing. But the thing is this, and here's what I learned. Uh, I, I learned it about in science this week, but I had learned it in life quite a bit earlier, and that's this. You can't both be empathizing with the person, feeling what they feel, and at the same time have a goal or an agenda to fix the person. The two can't be done at the same time. Uh, I, I, I found this. It's, neuroscience now proves this. Um, that when you're, the part of your brain that empathizes, when that's active, the part of your brain that does goal setting shuts down. And when you're doing goal-setting stuff, the part of your brain that you need to empathize with, that shuts down. The two don't work at the same time. Uh, it's neurologically impossible to both want to be trying to fix a person and to, be, and to be feeling what they feel. I just find it to be a fascinating fact. Now, it didn't really surprise me, because I learned that many years ago in my marriage. Um, yeah, so, so Shelly and I get married, and, and we move out east. I'm going to go to Yale, and, and, and uh, life's going to be happy ever after. But it wasn't. Uh, for the first six months of our marriage, it was really rocky. And that's a huge understatement, okay? We had a lot of things. One of the things we had to overcome had to do with this topic here. Because, see, I always assumed all my life that the only reason why you would want to talk about a problem is to fix it. Well, some of the guys say amen. That's why you talk about problems. Why else would you talk about a problem? Problems are unpleasant to talk about. So let's talk about them as little as possible and fix them as fast as possible. Is that not the most rational approach possible? It seems so reasonable. So Shelley would bring up problems. And I would fix them. I'd have a solution. Oh, that will just do this. And um, I'm, I'm kind of good at that. And it worked so well when we were dating. It just stopped working the minute we got married. What's up with that? So I, I give a solution. And to my surprise, she would often want to keep on talking about it. Or she'd let it go, but talk about it the next day. Keep springing this up. And I would say, oh, no, 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 we, we already talked about that. Uh, and so here's the solution. And she would say, okay, that's one solution, but I wonder if, or wonder about, and so she wanted to look at other, opportun- other possibilities. And see, I'm so arrogant, I don't want to look at other possibilities. 
Because it's unlikely that there's one that out, that's out there that's better than mine. And even if there is one that's better out there, it will take us two hours of talking to get to it, and it won't, it's not worth it. I'd rather take a semi-optimal thing and read for two hours than talk about a problem for two hours. I'm an idiot. I know, I know. I'm a moron. I got that. So now I have a new problem, and that's that Shelly keeps on bringing up problems. And I don't like to talk about problems, so I have a solution to this problem. Once a week we'll have problem hour, and we'll talk about the problem. I even have a time set up from 9 a.m. to 10 p.m. on Wednesday mornings. We'll talk about problems. And then when we're done, we'll have all of our solutions, and we'll have to talk about them again for the rest of the week. And when we try to bring one up, I'll think, oh, Wednesday's coming. Wednesday's coming. I'm an idiot. I'm a, I know. I get that. I'm a moron. But Shelly's response was about what the same as some of the women in this room are feeling right now. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. She married a Dr. Spock or an android or something. This guy's got no feelings. What is wrong with him? And that's not too far from the truth. Anyways, it didn't go very, very well at all. It didn't go well at all. Um, it, was, it, it was difficult. So several months later, after I, this thing falls apart, I'm driving around listening to my AM station, because that's the only one that I had in my $200 car. And uh, it's a talk show, and this guy comes on, and he's the author of Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus. Although uh, where I was at at this moment, I, I, I would have titled it Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Who Knows? Some different dimension, different universe or something. But uh, he said something really interesting. Now, there's a spectrum here, and, and, we, and we just got to talk in kind of general categories, and there's always exceptions. But generally speaking, he says, men tend to, when they talk about problems, they, they want to problem solve. That's the reason they do it. Women tend to talk about problems for a very different reason. Um, they first want to feel like they have a shared uh, concern here, that they're on the same page in terms of their, their emotional investment in this problem, so now they can solve it together. First comes the connectedness, and then let's look at solutions. But they first are in the box, and so they process to, to, to feel a connectedness in order to take on the problem together. And that was like a massive, massive, massive reframe for me. I was like, whoa, man, I, I think that was the first time it really occurred to me that some brains are completely different from my brain. Um, so they're not looking for a solution. What Shelley wants is to first know that I feel her concern for it. Now that is already a huge stretch for me. Because one of the things I discovered is that my bar for being concerned about anything is way, way higher than Shelley's. Certainly about problems. I don't get bothered by much of anything until it's really, really, really huge. So to, to chunk down and, and, and get in on the inside of these problems is really a stretch. But at least I'm in the same game. Before I realized, I, I, we're playing two different games. I'm playing the fix-it game, and she's feel, playing the let's-get-connected game. And so I, 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 I saw here that I've I got to reframe what I'm doing when she brings up a problem. When she brings up the problem, in fact, I have a rule that I live by, and that is when she first brings up a problem, I don't offer a solution until she asks for it. And uh, that's been really hard to do, because uh, my solutions are always so good. But uh, I'm, 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 uh, I'm getting better at it. And the processing thing, I'm going to be honest here, um, processing always sounds to me, and we have this discussion on staff, because sometimes we want to process on staff. Process to me is just another word for let's talk too long about a problem, longer than we have to. <laughs> but I know it's more than that, and I really, after we've been married, we're going to be married 40 years in another three months, and, and, and I'm, I'm getting better at it. She'll tell you I'm getting better at it, but... She and all my friends know that I'm not the world's best processor. It's like, okay, talk amongst yourself and just let me know what your conclusion was. I'll go read a book. 
See, the, the thing was, Shelly would sometimes say, I don't think you're hearing me. And I would say, I hear you. I know exactly what the, the problem is, and here's the solution. But see, I wasn't hearing her. I heard her words. I understood her words, but I wasn't hearing her soul. And I, I wasn't hearing her concern here. And um, the result was that I, she felt alone uh, tackling problems. Uh, I, my quick fix solutions things, it, they, they maybe would work, but they, they, they just didn't bring us together. And we weren't doing it together. I was just kind of doing it autocratically. And the result was she felt alone, and, and she felt, uh, understandably, that I'm just a person who is more interested in my books than I am in talking about problems with her. And that was not a good message to send to her. Uh, you live and learn. You live and learn. But it, it shows that you can't do, you can't both be problem-solving and empathizing. To empathize, you've got to turn off your fix-it mode. And if you're going to go into fix-it mode, then you're going to have to shut off your empathizing mode. And there's a whole evolutionary explanation for this, because when you're in fix-it mode, well, that's empathizing could, could lead you astray. You want to be just logical and, and, and reasonable and all that. You don't want to get emotional. But the two don't go hand in hand. If that's true of talking about problems, how much more true is it talking about people who are in crisis? The most important thing for a person in crisis is that they don't feel like they're alone in their pain. They don't want, nobody wants pity, but everybody needs compassion, and compassion means, come means alongside of, and passion means this emotion, to have someone mirroring the emotion, sharing the emotion, being on the inside of the emotion, means that you have to shut off all goals, goals and agendas and just embrace the suck. Now, that, that, that phrase is, uh, I have an acquaintance who was, served in the military for a couple of tours over in Iraq. And he tells me that in the military they have, when things go absolutely crazy, mayhem, impossibly hopeless, ugly, and painful, as they frequently do in war, um, he says they have this phrase, embrace the suck. And there's something about that phrase that I have just loved. It's got this like, embrace the suck, just go ahead, just grab it out. Is that all you got? Bring me more. I don't know. It's just got, it, it, it activates the right attitude in me. And so there's sometimes when I've said that to myself, embrace the suck. Don't fight it. Just embrace it as it is. And see, that's what, there's times when life falls apart and comes undone when the most loving thing you can do, the best thing that you can do, and maybe sometimes the only thing you can do is just embrace the suck as it is. Embrace the person who is in the midst of this, this suck. And there'll be time later on to talk about theology and to talk about order and to talk about, you know, how to move forward. But in that moment, the gift you're bringing to them is just you. It's not your wise advice. It's not your counsel. It's not your brains. It's not your smarts. It's not anything. Fix it. Maybe later on it will be, but right now you've got to put that on hold and just be present. Be there, loving the person as they are. And if they, like Job, they start saying stupid stuff and nasty stuff and Cursing God and saying terrible, terrible things. You let them say those things. That's part of the suck that you're called to embrace. God can take it, you know. He's, he doesn't get offended easily. In fact, in the book of Job, Job says nasty stuff throughout the whole thing. But when God shows up at the end, in chapter 42, he, he, he commends Job. He's mad at the, the friends because they spoke out of fear. They were inauthentic. They were serving themselves with their mirage theology. But God commends Job. He says, Job, you've spoken straight. He uses this Hebrew word, kun, which means to align with. You've spoken straight. He didn't speak truth. He said a lot of error, but he spoke honestly, authentically. And the whole point of the book is that that is what proves God's character in the heavenly realms. 
that God's not this master manipulator. Job vindicates God by being honest, saying all this nasty, nasty stuff, but he's the hero of the book. God can take your honesty. The most important thing to remember if you're going through the crisis or anyone else is going through the crisis is to be honest, speak straight, say what is real. Don't pretend. Don't tidy. No, just be who you are and let God love you as you are. Being present is your gift. Now, this also, I found this week, has also been scientifically confirmed in a number of different areas. It applies all over the place. Uh, for example, there's been a number of studies asking the question, what is it about trainers that really helps athletes succeed? And they found that it's not their expert advice. They've got expert advice, but you could get that reading a book, or you could get that you know, watching a video. Um, no, it's, it's not their information. It's the fact, primarily, that they're invested in, in their athlete. And, and the athlete has a sense that then um, they're not alone. This person understands the tremendous sacrifice they're making. This person uh, is going to, uh, they know that they're on the inside of their hopes and dreams. Uh, this person is going to share in the glory of their victories, but also share in the suckiness of their defeats. And just having a person there invested, being present, they're not running just for themselves. That is what gives those athletes that extra edge. Something similar is true, uh, there's some evidence for this, in psychology. It's not primarily the school of thought that determines how good a counselor is going to be. All the specialists fight over those theories. But all the empirical evidence is that the theories don't actually contribute all that much. At least there's no provable statistical correlation between any particular school of thought and a success rate. Rather, good counselors, regardless of what their theories might be, good counselors just have a way of communicating with their clients that they're there, they're on the inside, they're there for them, they're present to them. And regardless of what they say with their mouth or ideas they have, that's what heals. That's what frees people. Um, whereas the incompetent uh, counselors, it doesn't matter what school of thought they have, they're not able to so effectively be on the inside and communicate that to a person, and their clients don't uh, improve uh, as well. You could call this like the incarnational principle. Uh, it applies to every relationship we have. That the most important thing is to really be there. You have your ideas, you have your thoughts, you have your philosophies, you have all that stuff, but being there is everything. God, I call it the incarnational principle because God saves the world by incarnating himself. He just becomes present among us and then dives into our sin and dives into our curse, takes the worst that we have to offer, embraces the suck, and the love with which he does that is what frees us from the suck. It, 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 it's God's presence, loving presence, in us, at our worst, diving into our hell, taking on our sin, that's what frees the world. And that's what we are called to do with others when they are in a crisis situation, like our world has been in a crisis situation. It's being there that does the healing, being there loving them that transforms them. And science confirms that the greatest gift you have to give is yourself. Caring about the person, empathizing with the person, even if you stay totally silent, you are the encouragement because you had the courage to be there. And having the courage to be there is what breathes courage into them. Just be present. Just be present, loving them. No ifs, ands, or buts. Not trying to fix it, not anything. They'll tell you when they're ready for that. Just being present is everything. Now, I, I wanted to end by just sharing um, one of the most beautiful, maybe the most beautiful example of this that I've come across in my personal experience. It's, uh, because it's a relatively contemporary uh, event, um, and, and I, because I've been involved in it, I'm going to change the names and the details. 
so that to preserve the anonymity of the people involved. Um, so if you think you know who I'm talking about, I guarantee you, you don't, all right? Let's leave it at that. So it, it's, it's like this. Uh, Shelly and I have some friends. Uh, I'll name them uh, Kyle and Kayla. And um, they're not like, you know, we're not like best friends, but, but we're pretty good acquaintances, and, and we know them pretty well. And they have a son named Isaiah. I'll call Isaiah. And um, Isaiah is this, uh, he's a very handsome guy, good-looking guy, mid-30s. Um, he was always a very tender person, a very caring person, a very personable person, um, kind of a people-pleasing kind of a person, doesn't like any kind of conflict, a go-along-with-the-flow kind of a person. He was a, a guy who um, loves children, always has loved children, and wanted to be an elementary school teacher all of his life. And, um, but he also was a fragile person. Uh, he struggled with anxiety, had anxiety attacks at different times in his life. So he had to be uh, treating that. Well, Isaiah uh, at one point gets married to a lady, I'll just name her Tammy. And I have met Tammy, and Tammy was a very attractive young lady, gorgeous. Um, but her parents had reservations about Tammy right from the get-go. Because Tammy, as pretty as she was, there's something off there, they thought. Um, this is a lady who is demanding and domineering, and it's my way or the highway. Um, and that was it. She just ruled. She just ruled. And Isaiah, giving his tender temperament, whatever, was just, you know, a doormat for her. But he worshipped the ground she walked on. And so they cautioned him about marrying her, but he did it anyways. Um, Right away, they, they find out. Oh, the other thing about Tammy was that, that she's very career-driven. Uh, she wants to have a PhD in pharmaceuticals or something like that. And so the goal was that they're going to get married, and then, then he will work to support her to going through grad school so she can get a PhD. Uh, she didn't seem to have any maternal instincts. At one time, she even brought up reservations about having kids. But Isaiah made it clear, and Isaiah's parents really made it clear, that that was a deal-breaker because Isaiah loves children. So she agreed that sometime maybe they'll, they'll have, a, ha, have a child. So they get married, and... That, you know, and I'm only getting one side of the story. I've got to acknowledge that. There's always two sides of the story. But this is, I was pervy, I, I, I witnessed some of this, that her cruelty seemed to increase every year of their marriage. Uh, she began to belittle him all the time. He was never good enough and did things stupid and just mocked him in front of the kids sometimes. He was working as an elementary school teacher, but most of the child, they ended up having a child because he, at four years in the marriage, he was begging her for it, so she agreed to it. And then they had another one, just by divine providence, I suppose, and uh, uh, she was angry about that. But the, the, the child-rearing went to, to Isaiah for the most part, because she just wasn't interested. She was off doing her schooling. And so Isaiah and his parents are, are raising these kids. But see, his, his mental health starts to deteriorate under the constant badgering of this woman and trying to measure up, and he adores her, but he just can't ever please her, and he's a people pleaser. It was killing him, and so his anxiety goes through the roof. He gets some severe depression, and they didn't know this until later on, but around the four-year point in the marriage, he starts medicating himself with alcohol. And, and, and after eight years of this, he had developed a very serious alcohol problem. At eight and a half years in this marriage, that alcohol problem cost him his teaching job. And that was around the time that Tammy announces that she's going to divorce him. But it wasn't because of the drinking. She had been planning this divorce for a couple of years. In fact, she'd been working with lawyers for a couple of years about this divorce. In fact, she'd been collecting, secretly collecting evidence against him uh, about, with all this drinking, taking photographs and everything, so that when the court date came, took him totally by surprise. She brings this case that he's an unfit father uh, because he's an alcoholic. And so she gets full custody of the kids. Um, 
and, and he only has visiting rights for a couple of hours a week, and that has to be supervised. It just killed him. It just ripped him apart. And to see his, his wife, who doesn't seem to care about these kids very much, she's now going to be, she and her parents are going to be the ones to raise these kids, and none of them seem like they have much of a paternal instinct in, in them. It just killed him. On top of that, she had managed, very, she's a very smart lady, to put most of the bills in his name, and so he's left with this incredible debt because she was always living beyond her means and acquired this massive debt that now he has to pay off. And they're living in a house, and now it's, on, it, it's, it's underwater, and, and he's got to handle that, and he's got a car he can't afford. And this guy falls into a, a deep, deep, deep depression. He falls into a black hole. Uh, it becomes almost comatose. It just overwhelms him. His world falls apart. You can understand that. Uh, they actually have to put him on a suicide watch at, at first, and then they get him into a 30-day treatment thing. But he's so depressed, he can't participate in anything. He just sits there. He ends up back home with, with Kyle and, and Kayla, and, and they're trying to take care of him, but he can't get a job. He can't, he can't get out of bed some mornings. He's in this deep depression, deep anxiety, afraid of everything. When he is up, all he does is whine. He cries. He mopes. He, he, he's listless. And for some of you who have lived with people who are in that depth of despair, uh, it's exhausting. Kyle and Kayla were absolutely exhausted, and they were doing hopeless. Um, where's this going to go? It doesn't seem like it's going to go anywhere. Now, praise God, God sent an angel. And God does that in some situations. If your eyes are open, you can see it. God sends this angel. There's a young man named Christopher. Christopher had a similar past as Isaiah had. Um, had he'd gone through treatment. He was a, a sponsor, actually. About the same age as Isaiah. Uh, he had been through a divorce like Isaiah, and it was nasty. Not as nasty as Isaiah's, but he'd been around the block. And he, he had just become a Christian in the last couple of years. He was a, uh, the, the son of one of the friends of Kale and Kylan. So he actually knew uh, um, uh, Isaiah. But they weren't friends or anything. But Christopher got a, uh, his heart was kind of pricked when he heard about the plight of Isaiah. And he felt like God called him to come alongside of this young man. Because he had, didn't have any other friends. That was the only thing that Tammy did. Is she wouldn't allow him to have any friends, any acquaintances. She had to own him. And so this young man just introduced himself into his life. And he'd come over there whenever he could, even cut back on some working hours, to come and just be with this guy. And he just sat. And, and, and they told me that that uh, Isaiah was in a situation where sometimes he wouldn't even acknowledge the existence of Christopher. He would just sit there and get nothing back, no response, no feedback, no anything, but Christopher would just sit there and he said, want to watch TV or, or want to play cards together, or just to be present there. He also served Isaiah in some marvelous ways where um, he took time out. They, they had to get rid of this house as quick as possible. They couldn't afford to hire anyone to fix things. Uh, Christopher knows some things about fixing up places, and so he would go over to this house on his own and start fixing up the walls. Every evening, he would go over there, spend a couple hours fixing stuff. Uh, and he and some buddies took out the carpet because it was ruined and put in some new carpet, and they replaced some appliances because you can't sell it with those ruined kind of appliances you, know, that you, you have, and just poured hours and hours of loving work into this house. Most of it all alone. No one knew he was doing that. Although Isaiah, no, knew. In fact, Isaiah, after a while, started joining him and helping fix up the house a little bit. But see, every one of those acts, every hole he fixed, every room he painted, every curtain he repaired, every carpet he exchanged, it was an act that was saying to, to, to Isaiah, you are worth this. You, you have worth. You are loved. You are precious. He's communicating the value to, to, to this man. And it's slowly getting in. His presence there is slowly getting in, and he loves his way slowly, inch by inch, and sometimes it wasn't even, sometimes Isaiah would just push him out again, but slowly he gets into the heart. 
of this young man. And they become friends. And um, they begin to do things together. Uh, he's loving him out of the, the suck. He embraces him, loves him in the midst of the worst, just as he is, no solutions, but loves him then forward. And, and this is still an ongoing story, so I'll just tell you right now that Isaiah has been sober for over a year. Uh, he has gotten a teaching. His, he's a substitute teacher at elementary school, and they're saying in the fall he can get his job back because they see his, his sobriety. And um, one of the most amazing things is that uh, after he had had some sobriety, he, he appealed to the court, could he now have partial custody of the children? And as soon as he asked that, it's been now two years that Tammy and the parents have had the kids, and they're like, you can have as many hours with the kids as you want. And they're, they're, they're like, give it back to him. So now he's got 50% custody, and it's turning out to be more than that because they don't care about the kids that much, and he loves them. And, and he, he, Isaiah is, and this is, they said the most amazing thing, Isaiah isn't a Christian. They said it just never caught with him. He stopped going to church when he was 16, and it seemed like he never had a heart for anything dealing with God. It just never got through. It just, he didn't care about it. It's not that he didn't believe in it. He just, it didn't matter to him. But as, as Christopher and Isaiah developed this friendship, Isaiah gets a chance to testify a little bit about how, what God's done in his life and how God helped him through you know, this and that and the other thing. And they said to me, these, he actually, he, Isaiah actually listens to him, and he asks questions about it, and he seems hungry for it. He's not a Christian yet, but they're saying he is just going in this direction. And the main encouragement here has been them, Kyle and Kayla. They were doing hopeless before, utter hopelessness. And now this love is just incarnation. Christopher incarnated his life into the mess of Isaiah's life and loved him out of that mess, praise God. That's what we are called to do. That's what God does for us, and that's what we're called to do for one another. Amen? Amen. You are the gift. In every relationship, but especially in crisis things, you are the gift. It's not how clever you are and wise things you have to say and blah, 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 blah. Fine, if you've got that to offer, fine. But being there, fully there, present there, lovingly there, that is the gift. That's the incarnational principle. And so, so uh, when you're dealing with someone in crisis, monitor yourself first. Ask, am I, is this activating any fear in me? And you might find, you'll be surprised that actually there is some there. We usually don't get in touch with it. We just see the effects of it when we start talking. But get in touch with that. Ask God for wisdom about what to say, when to say, if you're going to say anything. But most importantly, ask God for the courage to be present. The other thing I'll just say, I'll end with this, is this. If you're the one that's in crisis, uh, you're the one whose life has come undone, don't be alone. That is the, you, that's a prescription for disaster. You need to reach out. Ask somebody. To, you know, like, I, I, was, I walk my dog around, around the school all the time, and there's a buddy bench there. I just love this buddy bench. If, if someone's not playing, doesn't have any friends to play with, you go sit on the buddy bench, and everyone knows, oh, this, he needs a friend. We need to be okay with having a buddy bench, you know, just saying, I, I need some help right now. Invite someone, some people, in on your, your situation. Maybe you want to go to the refuge, or just have some people around you who are okay just loving you as you are. They are all out there. If you just reach out and invite them in, would you stand? I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come forward here, and if you're here tonight and uh, have any need that could use prayer, maybe it's really serious, maybe it's pretty trivial, but uh, come up here and pray with these folks. They'd love to pray for you. And if you're here tonight and are not a surrendered disciple of Jesus, I would encourage you to consider that. And if you want to find out more about that, uh, come up here and talk to these folks. They'd love to explain that with you. As we leave here, can we be a people who get all of our life from Christ, who have the courage to face our fears, and have the courage to love people as they are, embracing the suck as it is,
If you're in agreement with that, say amen and go out and love on your neighbors.